Scott Horton has long been a leading anti-war act activist, the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, host of Anti-War Radio on Pacifica, 970 FM, KTFK, Los Angeles. He podcasts the Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org. And, and the author of several great works, it's my honor, honor, honor to introduce Scott Horton. Thank you so much, Josh. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for that great introduction. I endorse every word of that, by the way. Uh, yeah, thank you again, everyone, for having me and for your attention. Let me grab this water over here. Forgive me, I'd like to draw special attention to Kyle Anzalone over here, my partner at the Libertarian Institute and also at antiwar.com. He hosts the great show, Conflicts of Interest, which uh, I'm very proud of because it's so good uh, with Will Porter. So, happy to start with that. Can I bring my notes? Okay, good. So, yes, a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight, or today, it's usually nighttime when I give the speech. Uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about uh, here today does revolve around Iran, uh, as you heard in uh, Josh's great introduction there and America's relationship with Iran. Uh, the story starts in 1979, which of course really means, as you just heard, 1953, yep. with the CIA coup in Tehran, where uh, they overthrew the democratically elected parliamentary government of Mohammad Mossadegh and reinstalled the Shah Reza Pahlavi. And America and Israel helped keep him in power for about 26 years after that until the revolution of 1979. Now, a couple of things about the revolution of 79. Uh, the first thing is, you might have wondered, I did even as a little kid, and, and I was too little when it actually happened, but you know, in the 80s I learned about it at least, and I remember seeing the footage of the Ayatollah getting on the plane in Paris, France to go back to Iran. And I remember thinking, but aren't the French our buddies? And why would they do that if they didn't have permission from Washington, D.C. to do that? And the answer, of course, is that they did. And actually, and this is almost always, um, you know, it's not that it's a secret or anything, but it's just never talked about. The CIA and the State Department encouraged Jimmy Carter to go ahead and let the Ayatollah come home to Iran to inherit the revolution. They said, we know this guy. He's a friend of ours. He helped us overthrow Mossadegh back in 1953. He was part of a group of uh, Shiite religious clerics who would help to, uh, you know, drum up pressure from below against the Shah. And so we think we can deal with him. And in fact, uh, I'm sorry, I forget the name of the diplomat. One diplomat compared him to Mahatma Gandhi. So this is going to be fine. And so here's another important thing about the revolution of 79. And even some of you guys were adults at the time uh, and remember this as adults, but oftentimes even people who lived through it misremember and conflate the original revolution of February 1979 with the hostage crisis that didn't begin until November later that year, 10 months later. And in fact, the Carter government had spent the entire year <coughs> trying to get along with the Ayatollah's new regime. And the Ayatollah kept a major part of the national security establishment in place. And they had a lot of ties with the Israelis and with the Americans still. And the Americans were passing the Ayatollah's government intelligence, warning them of threats from the Soviets, warning them of threats from Iraq. But then what happened was David Rockefeller convinced Jimmy Carter to let the Shah into the United States for cancer treatment. And that's what caused the riot, because it was taken as a symbol by the Iranian students, at least, that they're going to cancel the revolution. They're going to try to do a coup and overthrow it, and so and reinstall the Shah again. And so they rioted and seized the hostages and burned the flag and named America the Great Satan. And yet, most Americans really only remember the part about the burn and the flag and the hostages and the America's the Great Satan and forget about all of what led up to it even that year when the Carter government was still trying to get along uh, with the revolution that they had originally endorsed. Now another important thing that happened in 1979 
was that the Carter government began, uh, authorized and began uh, CIA support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Now, the purpose of this, beginning in July of 1979, was to deliberately provoke the Soviet Union into invading. The thinking was that the American people didn't really want to get into any more Koreas or Vietnams. They had what our government considered a mental illness, Vietnam syndrome, a reluctance to go back to war after that absolute catastrophe. So the thinking was by uh, National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski and uh, the Defense Department's Walter Slocum that you know what we could do? Let's bait the Soviets instead of containing them, let's bait them into overexpansion. Let's give them their own Vietnam, since Vietnam was already widely considered to be a no-win catastrophe, a quagmire we should have never done that broke the bank, divided the society back home. What better way to wreck the Soviets than to lure them into, war, into a war they couldn't possibly win in Afghanistan? And that was the stated purpose of the intervention in the first place. Now, the Soviets did invade right around Christmas 79, and I hasten to add that it really wasn't American support for the Mujahideen that provoked it, although it may have slightly played a role. But in fact, the Soviet sock puppet dictator was doing a really lousy job in fomenting such civil war that when the Soviets invaded, the first day, the KGB took him out back and shot him in the head and replaced him. So that was their real motivation for the invasion, was to try to shore up this communist regime in the capital of Kabul, you know, regardless really of American support, which at that time was just beginning. But then, when they did invade, Zbigniew Brzezinski sent the memo to Jimmy Carter and said, now we can give them their own Vietnam. Now it's on. And so that was when the support really ratcheted up. But see, there was a problem. These same men looked at the map and said, oh no. You realize now that the Soviets have invaded Afghanistan and we've had this revolution in Iran, and this fragile government that's just come into power there, the Soviets could roll into Iran next. And they had been there in World War II, they had halved it with the British. They could come back, and then the Soviets would dominate the Persian Gulf, and we would have a real crisis. So we can't have that. So these men panicked over the invasion that they had deliberately sought to provoke. And Carter, in his State of the Union address in 1980, announced the Carter Doctrine. <clears throat> where he declared that the Persian Gulf is now an American lake, and that any attempt by any power anywhere in the world, read the USSR, to dominate the Persian Gulf would be treated as an attack on the United States of America, right? The same language Kennedy used about you know, Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. If anyone tries to uh, take a position of dominance over the Persian Gulf, it belongs to us now. And as part of the Carter Doctrine, they began building up bases in Qatar, Bahrain, and especially in Saudi Arabia. And all importantly, they decided to give the green light to Saddam Hussein, the new dictator of Iraq, who had just overthrown his leader. He had been the number two guy and had done a coup also in 79. And Jimmy Carter gave Saddam Hussein the green light to invade Iran to try to destroy the new government in the spring of 1980. Now, Saddam Hussein had his own problem with the Iranian Revolution. If you picture a map of Iraq, I know you've all seen it a hundred times by now, a thousand. The entire southeast of the country is what they call predominantly Shiite territory of Shiite Arabs. Saddam Hussein's government was a secular, bought this dictatorship, essentially a fascist party, but a secular one, and one which did protect minorities from religious sectarianism, by the way. But it was essentially the Ba'ath Party included Shiites and Christians and Kurds and others, but it was dominated by the Sunni tribes. And so Saddam Hussein, was, the Sunni Arabs in Iraq are about a 20% minority, predominant in the west of the country. Now, Hussein was afraid that the Iraqi Shia were going to choose their religious sect over their national and ethnic sect as Iraqis and Arabs, and instead would side with the Shiite revolution. And in fact, many of them did and started going to Iran to join the side of the revolution in the hopes of bringing it back into Iraq. So Hussein panicked and asked Jimmy Carter if he could have a war, and Jimmy Carter said, sure. And we know that from Robert Perry's great reporting 
uh, that he passed the green light through King Fahd, or then Prince Fahd, in Saudi Arabia to tell Saddam Hussein to go ahead. That'll be important later. Uh, so Saddam Hussein attacked, and he thought it would be easy, and it wasn't. And it led to a massive nine-year, essentially World War I-style trench warfare and, and tank warfare uh, combat. The New York Times noted Riley at the time that America was backing Saddam Hussein's Soviet-built army while the Russians were giving nominal support and fighting against the Iranian military forces that included American A-4s and F-14s and uh, American tanks and munitions because we'd switched sides in the war already. So um, then Ronald Reagan comes into power and essentially he continues these policies. First, he uh, doubles, triples, quadruples support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan but that also meant for a separate project, or coinciding project, uh, with the Pakistanis and the Saudis to recruit tens of thousands of what they called Arab Afghans from all across the Middle East, but as far north as Chechnya, as far east as the Philippines, as far west as California, to all go to Afghanistan to fight against the Soviets in the Holy Afghan Jihad. And it was this movement, the uh, Arab-Afghan army, as they called it, that included Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri and all of the most important leaders of al-Qaeda in the years to come. And they did play a major role in uh, helping the fight against the Soviet Union. Now, the Americans will say, well, but that was the Saudis and the Pakistanis that backed them, not us. We just backed the Afghans. Eh. Okay, but it's all one big project. It's all run through Pakistan. They're all being supported out of the very same bases. And if America did not directly fund Osama bin Laden, which is beside the point anyway, they did directly fund Gubaldin Hekmatyar, who was known, known as the Butcher of Kabul, and uh, later on caused major problems for the American occupation for years uh, in the later wars there. Uh, but anyway, um, so, and that eventually ended, as you all know, with uh, it, it really did help to contribute, by all accounts, it, it did help to contribute to the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, as their last big failed war uh, at the end of the 1980s. And they were finished off basically by the oil crash of the 1980s. Uh, majorly, they were majorly dependent on their oil exports. And so that pretty much finished off the USSR. And the Reaganites sure took credit for it. In fact, Hillary Clinton gave them credit for it uh, in a speech one time that, look, Ronald Reagan's support for this group did help lead to the fall of the Soviet Union. Zbigniew Brzezinski later said, oh, come on, who's supposed to worry? You're worried about some stirred up Muslims when we helped bring down the USSR. Well, guess what? Those stirred up Muslims believe the exact same thing. They had helped bring down the USSR. And what an example with their Soviet communist AK-47s and their faith in Allah, they had won the war. That was certainly the way they saw it, and they absolutely took that lesson to heart. Um, and Ronald Reagan also increased support for Saddam Hussein in his war against Iran, including giving him chemical weapons and including giving him American satellite intelligence so that he can target Iranian conscripts with those chemical weapons, including sarin and Taban nerve gas in the worst chemical warfare uh, since World War I, anywhere in the world. And you can read about that uh, at foreignpolicy.com by Shane Harris, who might as well be a CIA officer himself, as, as official as his writing always is. And uh, they have the documents. It's right there for you uh, to see. And then um, at the end of the Iran-Iraq War, uh, which ended in 1989, Saddam Hussein had a real problem. And that was oil was trading at about $10 a barrel, even in those prices back then. There's been a lot of price inflation since then, but still. Uh, $10 a barrel couldn't buy you a reconstruction of your country, nor could he in any way pay back the massive war loans that he had taken out from Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, etc. And the Kuwaitis especially were being demanding and calling in their loans. Now, I'm not saying that they deliberately entrap Saddam Hussein into invading Kuwait. I think they all but did that, and I think, in a sense, you could say de facto, 
they did. Because what happened was the CIA and Central Command were telling the Kuwaitis, you should talk tough, you shouldn't give in, what's he gonna do about it? While at the same time, the State Department under James Baker was telling Saddam Hussein, eh, oh, there's overproducing from shared wells on your border and you wanna adjust that border? See if I care, West Texas rules, right? You don't overproduce on your quota, get your knees broken. So go ahead, Saddam. <coughs> At least flashing yellow light, if not bright green. And so, um, and, and the reason I don't think that this was deliberate, in fact, is because Paul Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney at the Defense Department at the time went into a total panic. And they kept trying to send messages to Saddam Hussein telling, to tell him that they really meant it, that he better not. And then they, at one point they did, and then Pete Williams, you know him from NBC News, he was their Pentagon spokesman at the time, major coincidence about his career there. Um, <laughs> and, and he walked it back. I was like, well, you know, we don't have an alliance with Kuwait or anything like that, you know? And then even President Bush sent a statement essentially saying, we really wish you wouldn't do that, but in the language they used, Wolfowitz and Cheney were really worried that it was too soft of language, it wasn't a good enough warning, and they wanted to send another one, and by then the tanks rolled in. That's August 2nd, 1990. Well, that night, and this is Bob Woodward's reporting in the Commanders, according to Colin Powell and the rest of the National Security Council uh, Principals Committee, straight from the horse's mouth, they decide we're not gonna do anything about it. We're just gonna warn Saddam Hussein he better not invade Saudi Arabia. If he wants to roll down to Riyadh, he's gonna have a fight. Other than that, we don't care. And by the way, and I should have said, they only expected him to take the northern oil fields. They didn't really tell him, go ahead, take the whole country. And in fact, the American ambassador, April Glasby, told the New York Times, well, we didn't think he was gonna take the whole country. Right, just the northern oil field. So he went ahead and took the whole country and they still were gonna let him get away with it. And George Bush Sr., again, uh, president at the time, himself <coughs> indicated that no, we're not going to do anything about it. But then Margaret Thatcher came to town, the prime minister of Great Britain. And she told Bush and made it known that she told Bush, don't you go wobbly on me now, Bush, which meant you can't be less of a man than this woman. And so now that this is, now that this is a matter of macho, which it was, and that, I remember I was in ninth grade, but I was paying very close attention. That's exactly how it was, was he then threw down the gauntlet. This will not stand. We will reverse this. And as I document in the new book, Enough Already, they spent the next six months refusing to negotiate Saddam's exit out of Kuwait. He wanted out so bad. He didn't want a war at all. We'd been friends right up to the very end of July. We told him he could go ahead and do it. And all he wanted was out. And they refused to negotiate. They refused to leave him with the slightest bit of face saving, which is all it would have required. Once they started the buildup, now it was on. As Bush announced on September 11th, 1990, in his joint address to the US Congress, this is the dawn of the new world order. What we say goes. And that's it. And this will be the first example. Saddam Hussein's regime will be made to pay. Now, the way most people remember Rap War I was that was easy. Our space age technology, night vision goggles and laser guided satellite guided bombs and all of our you know, high tech sophisticated stuff. War only took six weeks. And that was only because we were taking our lazy time bombing them before we sent the tanks in. The tanks, remember famously, was a 100 hour ground war. Great, except that that was 30 years ago. We've been fighting in Iraq ever since, so I think something might have gone wrong. And when I say 30 years ago, I'm not rounding up. That was 30 years ago, in 1991. So here's what went wrong, okay? Remember why Saddam Hussein invaded Iran? Because he was afraid the Iraqi Shia were gonna take Iran's side in the revolution? Well, this became a real problem right after the war. America had absolutely smashed Saddam Hussein's military. And it was widely agreed that we couldn't go, uh, the US forces could not go to Baghdad to get rid of this guy that they had built up as Hitler. So damn insane, can't negotiate with him, can't deal with him, can't live on the same planet with him. So now that he's Hitler, don't we have to go all the way to Baghdad and get rid of him? But then the answer was no, because then we'll lose all of our UN coalition and Arab coalition partners. And as Dick Cheney said in 1994, 
we'd gotten bogged down in a really bad quagmire trying to hunt down Saddam Hussein, trying to install a new government and its authority in the country would be absolutely impossible. So they stopped. They didn't go to Baghdad. Instead, they encouraged the Iraqi Shiites and the Kurds in the far north of the country to rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein. And George Bush Sr. put out a message over Voice of America, and they dropped leaflets over Iraqi army divisions, saying, now's your chance. Go get him. And they did. They took the opportunity, and they rose up to destroy the Hussein regime. But then Bush Sr. and his National Security Council changed their mind and called it off like the Bay of Pigs. And what happened was this. They realized, wait a minute, we just spent nine years supporting Saddam Hussein's war against Iran to contain the Iranian Revolution. Sorry, stage right, this way. To contain the Iranian Revolution. Now we're importing it into Iraq. And we've got the Iraqi Shia who took Iran's side in the revolution. They're now coming back across the border to lead the revolution, namely the Badr Brigade of the Supreme Islamic Council. We're going to end up putting the Ayatollahs in power in Baghdad. So they called it off. And then Schwarzkopf, in the negotiations, deliberately let Hussein keep enough tanks and attack helicopters to suppress the insurrection. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed. 200,000 Kurds and Iraqi Shia were slaughtered by Hussein. And then that became the excuse for America to stay in Saudi Arabia. We have to protect those we just encouraged to revolt and then betrayed. But the uprising had been crushed. It's like Saddam Hussein was going to continue to hunt down every last Shiite fighting age male in the country. The, the uprising was over. They were going to go back to some sort of status quo. This was a shoddy excuse to expand permanently America's military footprint in the Middle East. And they had Dick Cheney personally, and he's uh, explained this himself, uh, had promised the king of Saudi Arabia that we will leave as soon as we're done kicking Hussein's regime out of Kuwait. But instead, they stayed and declared what they called no-fly zones over North and South Iraq. And then at, right at this time, the Israelis were changing their strategy to an anti-Iranian strategy. They'd gotten along with the Ayatollah's regime just fine all through the 1980s. That's why you'll remember when Reagan switched sides for a time and sold missiles to the Ayatollah. He went through the Israelis to do it. Um, anyway, so in 1993, the Israelis decided actually radical Islam is a problem. Uh, it's new glue for the alliance, not that the Soviet Union is gone. It's new glue for the alliance between America and Israel. And so the problem is Iran. And the, reportedly, the Clinton guys thought this was hilarious that because the Ayatollah hadn't done anything. It was just the Israelis had decided to change their strategy by 180 degrees and didn't even have an excuse for it. But they said, now we have to, you Americans, have to stay in Saudi Arabia to enforce this policy of dual containment. And it was the brainchild of Martin Indyk, who previously had worked for Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir. And Bill Clinton was reluctant to do it at first, but after the gigantic fake hoax of the alleged assassination attempt against George Bush Sr. in Kuwait in 1993, which was totally fake, um, at that point, and it's in the book, uh, at that point, um, Clinton decided, okay, fine, and adopted this Israeli-centric policy of dual containment. Iraq, because we just bombed the hell out of them, no longer have the ability to contain Iran. So now America is going to have to contain them both from bases in Saudi Arabia. And then, as hopefully you all do remember from the Clinton years, he kept that no-fly zone. And not only that, he kept the sanctions regime which is a full economic embargo against Iraq and enforced from those bases in Saudi Arabia throughout his entire presidency uh, and, you know, until through the year 2001. Now, um, it was this policy, more than any other thing, that turned Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan's former freedom fighters from Afghanistan, the <coughs> Arab-Afghan army, into our enemies. Bin Laden inherited what was called the Azam Group that was led by a guy named Abdul Azam, and then he merged it with Ayman al-Zawahiri's Egyptian Islamic Jihad. And this is what became Al-Qaeda. 
And they started attacking the United States first in 1990. Their first attack in America was against the radical right-wing Rabbi Kahane in New York City, who uh, advocated the purging of the West Bank and Gaza Strip of all Palestinians and the colonization of all 100% of that land by Israeli Jews. And it was that same cell that murdered Rabbi Kahane in New York who then blew up the World Trade Center in 1993 in an attack which, for some reason, there was a massive failure of imagination on people's parts here. They nearly succeeded in toppling one tower over into the other with a truck bomb in the basement broken at the bottom, which could have killed 20,000 and 30,000, whatever other buildings would have been hit by them. And this was late in the afternoon. This could have been, you know, and what happened was the ATF raided the Branch Davidians the next day and changed the subject. And who wants to learn a bunch of Arab names and all of this stuff? And so the story went away. It was, it was just one month and one week into Bill Clinton's presidency. And who wants to change the subject to Arab terrorism now? Nobody. So let's just not focus on it. And then they just let it go. And the FBI refused to do their job for 10 years straight, as al-Qaeda and the CIA too, as they continue. And, and I should say, it's in the book, but I don't want to leave this out. The CIA had intervened to allow these terrorists from the World Trade Center bombing of 93 into the country in the first place. The State Department wanted to keep them out. The CIA said, no, these are friends of ours from the war in Afghanistan. Let them in. And then they had a walk-in informant. An Egyptian army intelligence officer said, guys at the mosque want to blow something up. I want to work for you, FBI. And they hired him. But they tried to insist he wear a wire while he's sleeping on the floor of the mosque with these guys and, and refused to give him more than 200 bucks a, a week, whatever it was and they essentially, the, the supervisor closed down the operation. The, the field agents apparently really were trying to crack this thing, and it was their supervisor refused to let them do their job, and so the first World Trade Center bombing happened on their watch, and then they just covered it up, completely got away with it, and it's that same um, you know, quality of police work from the FBI through the rest of the 1990s, by the way, too. And there were more attacks. They hit Americans training the Saudi National Guard in 1995. They hit the Kobar Towers in 1996, which the Saudis, the FBI, and the Clinton administration all agreed to blame on the Iranians across the Gulf. But that was Osama bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who did that. And what did they do? They bombed the Kobar Towers. What's that? It was barracks for American airmen whose job it was to bomb Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia. And in America, instead of having this conversation, the conversation was, why isn't Bill Clinton carpet bombing Tehran? When, of course, they had nothing to do with it at all. And then the whole story just went away. Two years later, they bombed the African embassies in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Nairobi, Kenya. And then, uh, almost certain it was in 1999, was a failed dinghy boat attack on an American destroyer, the USS the Sullivans, which all five of the Sullivans died in World War II. That's why it's named that. Um, and then in 2000, they succeeded in blowing up the USS Cole and killing 17 sailors and almost sinking that ship at port in Aden with a dinghy attack. And then there was a luckily, just absolute luck of the draw, thwarted attack on uh, LAX in 2000. You might remember a uh, Border Patrol officer at Washington State and British Columbia said, boy, you're pretty sweaty for how cold outside it is. Why don't you step out of the car there, Mr. Arab man? And let's look in your trunk. And there was a map to LAX and explosives and, uh, I don't know, uh, some kind of bin Ladenite materials of some kind. And he was, they trace him, he was a real Al-Qaeda guy. That was an actual plot. Um, luckily thwarted there, just almost by luck of the draw. But anyway, so all through this time, Al-Qaeda is attacking the United States and killing innocent Americans and killing American combat forces overseas. And this whole time, Bill Clinton's still using them. He backed their forces in Bosnia in 92 through 94. He backed their forces in Chechnya from 97 through 99, at least, and also backed them in the war in Kosovo with bin Ladenite fighters from the Afghan war helping to uh, fight to break off Kosovo from Serbia uh, in the Kosovo Liberation Army. And in fact, as I quote in both books, uh, in fact, in Fool's Errand, I have the exact quotes, uh, Bill Clinton and uh, two of his Democratic allies, Brad Sherman from the House and Tom Lantos from the Senate, all said something very close to 
how could these Muslims attack us like this after all that we've done for them lately? And they really had thought that they had bought the terrorist loyalty somehow by supporting them fighting the Russians in the Caucasus. But American, the American occupation of Saudi Arabia of those bases in order to bomb and blockade Iraq, that had not changed. Support for American military <coughs> dictatorships across the Middle East had not changed. Pressure on them to ramp up production to keep oil prices low to subsidize our economy at their expense had not changed. And our support for the Israelis in their occupations of the Palestinians and at that time the Lebanese for about 20 years had not changed. And so they hadn't bought off anything at all. And you know, the Democrats keep seeming to think that if they just back the Mujahideen, then things will be fine. Ambassador Stevens learned the same lesson the hard way in um, 2012, but I'm getting ahead of myself. And I better hurry, huh? How much time do I have up here still? You guys interested still? Yeah? Yeah. Right? Okay. All right. You guys remember most of this, right? I'm just helping with the through line, that's all. I know you know it. So um, now here's the thing about it. I talked about why they hate us, right? It wasn't freedom. It was the bases in Saudi being used to bomb the Iraqis. It was support for the Israelis. It was support for the dictators in the region, etc. Just like bin Laden said over and over again. And it doesn't matter what bin Laden believed himself, right? If, if he's Lex Luthor and a mass murderer and completely must be taken at face value as disingenuous, then what does it matter? What it matters is this was his shtick. This is how he got people to join his special forces group against us. He didn't say they let their daughters vote in primary elections or at Libertarian Party state conventions. He said they support our dictators, they drop bombs on our heads, they deliberately starve children to death, and they shrug about it. And so that was how he got people to join him, and I'll give you a major example of that. In 1996, after Yitzhak Rabin, who had inaugurated the new anti-Israel policy, was assassinated by a settler uh, from the West Bank, his, uh, the guy who had been his defense minister, Shimon Peres, took power. And as part of this same anti-Iranian policy, he launched a new incursion into Lebanon called Operation Grapes of Wrath. And when he did that, there was a young, a couple of young Egyptian engineering students studying in Hamburg, Germany, Ramzi bin Ashib and Mohammed Atta. And that day, Mohammed Atta filled out his last will and testament, which was essentially symbolically him joining the army against the empire, his, uh, symbolizing his willingness to die fighting America. And then just about a month or two after that was when bin Laden was finally exiled from Sudan to Afghanistan, and he issued his first declaration of war, his fatwa against America, called the Declaration Against the American, Declaration of War Against the Americans Occupying the Land of the Two Holy Places. Pretty subtle, right? So in that declaration of war, he cites Operation Grapes of Wrath, and especially what's now known as the, the first Kana massacre, because they did it again in 2006, 10 years later. But in the first Kana massacre, the Israelis bombed a United Nations shelter and killed 108 women and children. And bin Laden went on at length about this and described how we will never forget the arms and heads torn from the bodies of the babies and this kind of rhetoric. And that was when Mohammed Atta and his friend Ramzi bin al-Sheib decided to go and travel to Afghanistan to meet Osama bin Laden and join Al-Qaeda. And then, of course, you know that Mohammed Atta was the pilot of Flight 11 that hit, I forget, I'm sorry, if it was the North or the South Tower, I believe the North Tower was the first hit on September 11th. And Ramzi bin al-Sheib is in Guantanamo Bay to this day for helping to arrange the whole thing uh, from Spain and acting as a middleman in the September 11th plot. So bin Laden did not motivate these men to kill all those Americans and usher in this entire new generation of warfare as revenge for us being free and being innocent and being good and loving our mamas and participating in democracy was never what it was about. Incidentally, 
They never said that that was what it was about, ever. Only our president and his partisans lied that that was the case. Simple as that. Now, here's the other thing about it. And this is important because you can read Brett Stevens in the New York Times getting this wrong just a couple of weeks ago. They're trying to scare us away. They thought that if they hit our towers that we would turn tail and run. And then what's Brett Stevens do? He cites Bin Laden taunting us and saying, I bet you'd turn tail and run. <laughs> but come on, guys. It's asymmetric war, right? John Miller, who used to be an ABC News reporter and then later became an FBI agent, interviewed Bin Laden in 1998. And he later told Peter Bergen that when Bin Laden told him, I'm declaring war against you Americans all over the world, government, military, civilians, I don't care. You're all fair game and I'm coming for you. That he dared not out loud, but internally he was laughing to himself and saying, yeah, you and what army, pal? That's the quote, you and what army? This guy's hiding in exile on the Afghan-Pakistan border with his 200 friends in exile, as far as you could ever get from anywhere without, without already being on your way back again the other way around. How is he supposed to take on the United States of America? But then the answer is, what army is our army? The answer is, he put America's entire national security establishment to work for him to accomplish his goals. And that was the plan all along. This is in Saul Alinsky. In all asymmetric political action, including terrorism, the action is in the reaction of the opposition, okay? And so now, just to belabor the point a little bit about this strategy, I have a quote here from Osama bin Laden's son, Omar. Now it's Hamza bin Laden who is the murderer and apparently got got a couple of weeks ago, or uh, pardon me, a couple of years ago. Uh, but this is Omar bin Laden. He's a good kid. He met with a Rolling Stone reporter named Guy Lawson in Damascus in 2010. So keep in mind as I'm reading this quote that this is when Osama bin Laden was still alive for another year. He says, my father's dream was to bring the Americans to Afghanistan. He would do the same thing to them he did to the Russians. I was surprised the Americans took the bait. I so much respected the mentality of President Clinton. He was the one who was smart. When my father attacked his places, he sent a few cruise missiles to my father's training camps. He didn't get my father, but after all the war in Afghanistan, they still don't have my father. They have spent hundreds of billions. Better for America to keep the money for its economy. In Clinton's time, America was very smart, not like a bull that runs after the red scarf. I was in Afghanistan when Bush was elected. My father was so happy. This is the kind of president he needs, one who will attack and spend money and break the country. I'm sure my father wanted Senator John McCain more than Obama in the 2008 election. McCain has the same mentality as Bush. Now, of course, this is an extremely naive take on Clinton and Obama, but the point <laughs> remains. And we'll get to Obama in a second here. But the point remains, see? And this, is, you, this guy couldn't possibly make this up. He's just telling you what his father told him. We're going to give them their own Vietnam and Afghanistan. Just like they helped us do to the Soviets a generation ago, we're gonna do it again. And I quote in Fool's Errand, Bin Laden's letter to Mullah Omar, where he says, listen, I know things look really bad now that we're being carpet bombed, but even if, you guys, even if you and I don't live to see it, believe me, 10 years from now, he meant 20, but same difference. 10 years from now, the Americans will be broken and bankrupt and leave, and it'll have been worth it. And now this is a guy who, on his side, he's saying we want to replicate the Soviets' war, but the Soviets' war in Afghanistan killed a million Afghans. But to bin Laden, oh well, let Allah sort them out. They're all true believers. They'll go to heaven anyway, so who cares? And if we have to get the Americans to kill another million Afghans in order to finally break the American empire, force them out the long way and the hard way around, then that's what we'll do. 
And that was what he wanted, as he said over and over again, to create a war of attrition where the Americans, with their overwhelming power, would only dig their own grave, just as the Soviets had done before. You might think that the Americans, having helped these same men do this to the Russians, these very same men do this to the Russians just 20 years before, 15 years before at that time, you think uh, the lesson might have stuck a little bit, but no. The only lesson from that war for the Americans was now the Soviets are out of the way, we can do whatever we want, including give ourselves some more Vietnams. Now, um, when W. Bush came into power and after September 11th, and he went to Afghanistan, uh, he then decided on the bait and switch. And for those of you who were already a bit cynical about this, you might even remember the night of September 11th, he refused to use the name Al-Qaeda, even though everybody already knew it was bin Laden who had done it. There was warnings all summer long that there was a bin Ladenite attack on the United States. There's no one else in the world was going to do that. Nobody thought it might be Hezbollah or something like that. They knew it was bin Laden who did it, but he didn't say that. He said, the enemy is terror. And he did the same thing in his speech to Congress just a few days later, too. The enemy will be defined as broadly as possible from here on out. Consider yourselves on notice. Now, the actual enemy was really, quite literally, and I have this from the CIA analysts and officers themselves directly, 400 men. And that included about 350 in Afghanistan and another 50 guys, another five zero guys around the Middle East, you know, financiers and couriers and bagmen. Uh, there was no threat at all. And the whole thing could have, they had to steal our own planes to even attack us. And the entire war, even as Gary Bernson, who was the second CIA commander on scene, has said, and as General Zinni, who had been the commander of Central Command uh, under Bill Clinton, had said, this entire war could have been over by Christmas 2001. They didn't have to declare a war on terrorism at all if they'd only declared war on Al-Qaeda. And I won't belabor this point because I know I'm rambling on too long here. But in both books I show, and particularly in detail in Fool's Errand, that it's almost certain, it's a circumstantial case, but it's virtually certain that they deliberately decided to let bin Laden escape. And they refused to provide Army Rangers, Green Berets, and Marines, all of whom were nearby in force to provide the reinforcements that the CIA Special Activities Division and the Delta Force operators needed at Tora Bora. And in the words of the Delta Force commander, we just couldn't understand it. And in the words of the CIA commander, we begged them, begged them for weeks. And they had plenty, Green Berets in the north, Rangers in Kandahar and at Bagram Air Base, a helicopter right away. And James Mattis, Trump's first Secretary of Defense, had 4,000 March of Marines right there in Kandahar. They could have been there to seal the border. And then once bin Laden and his men got across the border, they were refused all permission to pursue them. Even though they didn't jump into hyperspace, they just went to Pakistan, it's right there. And Pakistan now, I mean, they're a friendly government, not necessarily loyal to all of our goals, but they were sure loyal to our goals that week. Dick Armitage had told them, you're gonna do everything we say, we're gonna bomb you back to the Stone Age, and I think you believe me. And dictator Musharraf said, I do believe you. You have carte blanche to do whatever you want. And in 88 days to Kandahar, the CIA station chief in Islamabad, see, I wasn't going to belabor this point, right? Um, <laughs> the CIA station chief in Islamabad, Robert Grenier, uh, wrote that he had already arranged with the Pakistani Army and Frontier Corps to make sure to protect from friendly fire, that we expect our Delta Force operators will be in hot pursuit of these terrorists coming across the border, and we want to have all of our deconfliction lines already set up, and they were. They were expecting our guys to follow. Bush would not let them follow, and you guys know why, too. They needed to keep you afraid. They needed to be able to say Saddam Hussein is in alliance with this bin Laden guy, and he could give his chemical weapons to bin Laden, and then bin Laden, imagine, as Bush said over and over again, September 11th, only with chemicals this time a mushroom cloud. We think they have a nuclear weapons program, but we can't prove it to you because if we wait for the evidence, the proof could come in the form of a mushroom cloud over an American city. We're gonna nuke you in your jammies. Now, who the hell cares if Saddam Hussein, beaten Saddam Hussein, 
is friends with Osama bin Laden if bin Laden's already dead and the American people already believe that we've had our revenge and justice has been done and we said, you know, dead or alive, and we got them dead and that's the end of that. It would have been much harder. And in fact, again, Bob Woodward straight from the horse's mouth and straight from the National Security Council minutes of their meetings. Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld all agreed that we need to define the enemy as broadly as possible. They were worried that bin Laden would be killed and that if he is killed, the American, will get the, wrong, the American people will get the wrong idea the war is over. And so Rumsfeld said, maybe we should start bombing Iraq right now just to make sure the American people understand that um, this is a much broader fight. And in fact, you, you probably all remember I quote the entire statement because I wouldn't want anyone to think I was cheating in both books. Just six months after September 11th, in March of 2002, George W. Bush said, I'm truly not concerned about bin Laden. I will reiterate this. Let me repeat this to you. I truly am not concerned. And then he's trying to explain, but it's, George, it's just George W. Bush, so he can only do it so well. But he's trying to get the point across that, listen, you ignorant newswoman who's asked me this question, this betrays a fact that you don't understand the real mission and the real enemy and what's really going on here. It's much, much bigger than one man. And on and on he goes. But he can only say it in a way where he's essentially admitting, yes, I've called off the hunt for this guy. We let him get away and we're not looking for him now because we want you to still be afraid. It's gonna take a year and a half to build up our forces, or from the time he gave that statement, it's gonna take another year to build up our forces in Kuwait for the invasion and we gotta keep you scared from now to then. It's as simple as that. They knew what they were doing. And if you didn't believe it at the time, then you saw right through it too. Now, um, so Afghanistan's a disaster. We are finally leaving now except the CIA and the mercenaries, but they are pulling military forces out of there. There may be continuing airstrikes from, I don't know where, from the Indian Ocean or from Uzbekistan or something, but essentially they are finally wrapping up the war in Afghanistan after 20 years of total failure. The Afghan National Security Forces are falling apart. The Taliban are taking district after district as we speak. The fighting season's just begun. Uh, but if Afghanistan, if the American invasion and occupation of Afghanistan was all bin Laden ever wanted, then the invasion of Iraq and then later Obama's wars in Libya, Syria, and Yemen this is all Osama bin Laden's dream come true. And right after he was killed in 2011, our, my favorite writer of all time from antiwar.com, Jeff Huber, former naval commander and humorist, uh, Jeff Huber, wrote this great article called Osama bin Laden, dead and loving it. And he says, eat your heart out, Charlemagne. Et tu, Julius Caesar. And how do you like them apples, Alexander? Because here before us lies the corpse of the most successful general in all of world history. This ridiculous man hiding in the attic from his own wife was able to control ma the most massive and powerful armies in the history of the world and move them from nation to nation, from state to state with the slightest effort. Hey, young German, uh, young Egyptian engineering student in Germany, want to change the world with me? One and done. And sit back like that Onion headline, sit back and watch America destroy itself on the premise that we're fighting this terrorism. We, he got everything he wanted. Now, we got to talk about Iraq War II a bit here and how bad that went. Everybody knows that Iraq War II was bad. Everybody knows that, yeah, we shouldn't have done that, including John McCain on his deathbed said, yeah, we shouldn't have done that. So, you know any last Iraq war dead-enders, tell them that. Um, but here's the thing, nobody knows why it was bad other than all the people got killed. And the reason for that is they never told us who was who in the war. They always just said, well, it's us and the Iraqi people fighting for democracy against the terrorists who are trying to stop us. <laughs> yeah, well, that's really not right. We're fighting for not the people but the most powerful political factions of that Iraqi Shiite supermajority. When W. Bush invaded, he was picking up right where his father left off, 
when he betrayed the Shiite uprising in 1991. And what Bush did was he took them all the way to Baghdad and he fought a five-year civil war for them. And in fact, a sectarian cleansing campaign that turned Iraq from a pretty much 50-50 mixed city into now an 85 to 90% Shiite city. And Bush gave a total victory for the Shiite side. But then, as even the army admits in their official history now, and it's no Pentagon Papers, it's the one they wrote for release, uh, the Odierno report, they even admit that the only true winners of Iraq War II was the Iranians, because they got their revolution. Now, the neoconservatives had made this bad bet that if America got rid of Saddam and put, not just Saddam, but the Sunni minority dictatorship, and put the Shiite supermajority in power, that that would give them leverage over Iran. And that would give them leverage over Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And they'd be able to break Hezbollah away from the Shiite authority in Iran and make them obey compliant Shiite authorities in Iraq instead. Well, this is just absolute harebrained, crazy nonsense. It's never going to happen, and that's not at all what happened. It's Iran's best friends who inherited the power. And then the Bush people realized their mistake and fessed up to it at least internally by the end of 2005, beginning of 2006. And everyone, you have one homework assignment, other than my great books, and that is to read <laughs> The Redirection by Seymour Hirsch in The New Yorker magazine from 2007. The Redirection, it goes like this. We really screwed up and we just fought a war for the Ayatollahs, for the Iranians that we hate for declaring independence from us back in 79, the Iranians who we no longer have dominance over. And we just gave them Iraq and increased their power and influence by percents, however you measure it, thousands or hundreds of percents in the region. So now we have to make it up, not just to the Saudi king, but all of our allies of the region are the, the Sunni kings of Arabia, the Jordanians, the Turks, and the Israelis. That's our alliance. And we have to make it up to all of these guys who we have just terribly disappointed. The uh, king, the same guy who gave Saddam the green light to invade Iran, who had been Prince Fahd in 1980, when Jimmy, in, in, uh, yeah, in 80, when Carter gave him the go-ahead. The go well, he was the same guy that Zalmay Khalilzad, the American neoconservative, went to meet with him, and it's in the WikiLeaks, that he's now the king, and he said, it used to always be us and you and Saddam Hussein against Iran. But now, you've given Iraq to Iran on a golden platter. We say silver platter, they say golden, but they're royalty, you know. <laughs> You've now given Iraq to Iran on a golden platter, and so what are you going to do about it? And Zalmay Khalilzad and Dick Cheney said, we're gonna do whatever you want, your highness, and that meant not backing the Saudi state so much because they don't really have a land army. You guys know. It meant going back to backing Al-Qaeda. And so the bad guys, the worst of the Sunni-based insurgency from Iraq War II, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was comprised largely of foreign fighters who, just like Afghanistan, had come to Iraq to fight against the Americans as though we were the Soviets, they started going home to Libya, where just as, Os <clears throat> just as Obama was killing Osama in May of 2011, he was taking bin Laden's side in Libya, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, Ansar al-Sharia, and Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, these all would have been known as the very worst of the Zarqawiite suicide bomber Al-Qaeda enemies on the side of the Sunni insurgency from Iraq War II that wasn't even quite over yet. We still had troops from Iraq War II through the end of 2011. And they were still going on limited missions against Al-Qaeda in Iraq. As long as they're in Libya, they're moderate rebels, they're fine. And then I alluded to this earlier, but this is what got Ambassador Stevens killed in the Benghazi crisis in 2012, was he was embedded with a bunch of jihadist bin Ladenite terrorists. And his mission was working with the CIA to funnel these terrorists and weapons they'd taken from Gaddafi's stores off to the next war in Syria. And just like the Democrats keep believing, as I said, that if you back these guys, you'll buy their loyalty, that wasn't true. And the CIA was backing these terrorists in Libya, but guess what? They were bombing them in Pakistan with the drone war. And they bombed a Libyan, Al-Qaeda guy in Pakistan, 
He's actually the brother of one of the guys that uh, Cheney tortured into accusing Saddam of teaching al-Qaeda how to make chemical weapons, uh, Sheikh Ibn al-Libi. It was his brother, Sheikh Yahya al-Libi. One hand of the CIA killed this guy, while the other hand of the CIA was embedded with all of his friends shipping weapons off and fighters off to Syria. And so Ayman al-Zawahiri put out a podcast, the leader of al-Qaeda, saying, hey, you know what would be great would be, you know, September 11th is coming up, and you, ha you guys have Americans right within range. Why don't you reach out and touch them? And then that was exactly what happened. As revenge for the assassination of Sheikh Yahya al-Libi, they killed Ambassador Stevens just two months later. All right, then, I swear I'm trying to hurry. <laughs> it's too late now. Go ahead. So then they go to Syria, and as you know, they backed what was called Jabhat al-Nusra, the so-called moderate rebels. They claimed it was the Free Syrian Army, but they were just the gun runners for uh, the terrorists there. And support for them for two years, from 2011 through 13, is what led then to the creation of the Islamic State. First, in eastern Syria, when the leader of the Iraqi-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq broke off from al-Qaeda's leadership and broke off from the Syrian-dominated Syrian faction of al-Qaeda. And they said, we want to create our caliphate now. We don't want to just keep fighting and wait till the Americans are exhausted and gone. We want to create our caliphate now. And so they did, and they consolidated a state in eastern Syria. And then one year later, they rolled right into western Iraq, where the Shiite parties that America put in power had very little authority. It was essentially wide open, stateless territory. And so the ISIS guys were able to roll right in, and then in the ultimate humiliation, is no different than if it was Osama bin Laden himself, when Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, got up on the balcony at the Grand Mosque in Mosul, like Mussolini, and declared himself the Caliph Ibrahim, ruler of the Islamic State, eraser of the Sykes-Picot border between Syria and Iraq, and ruler of the Caliphate. And then this led, of course, to Iraq War III, where America was bin Laden, I mean, uh, um, pardon me, uh, Obama, I keep conflating Obama and Osama for some reason, they were on the same side all the time. And so this backfired so badly and was such an embarrassment to the Americans that then what happened? They had to take the side of the Iraqi Shia that they wished they hadn't fought Iraq War II for to fight Iraq War III in order to destroy this bin Ladenite caliphate that they had built just to spite them. And that's where things remain now in Iraq and Syria, with the Islamic State gone and American forces in both countries, nominally in the name of the bin Ladenites, ISIS, when in fact the Americans, through their allies, the Turks, continue to back al-Nusra in the Idlib province, revealing what side they're really on. And occasionally you have statements from the likes of Donald Trump and others that what we're really doing there is we're there for Iran, the guys that we just fought two wars in a row for. Oh, not in a row. One war for them, then one against them, then another one for them again. And that's why we have to stay there. And that was what led to uh, the crisis that Josh talked about in his talk with the assassination of Soleimani. And in fact, whenever they tell you that, look, an, an Iranian-backed Shiite militia, this happened this year too, an Iranian-backed Shiite militia has fired rockets at American forces. Well, you don't know that, do you? And you know what? The people making those claims, they don't really know that either. And in fact, I had a great Iraqi reporter that I interviewed who said, listen, this territory where the Katushas were fired in the 2019-2020 incident, that territory's wide open. It could have been ISIS. It could have been any one of 20 different Shiite militias of varying degrees of relationship with Iran. Nobody really knows. They decided they wanted to blame an Iranian-backed group called Khatib al-Hezbollah. They couldn't prove that. And then, uh, but think about it from the bin Ladenites' point of view, there's nothing smarter for them to do than to fire a bunch of rockets at an American base and try to make it look like the Shiites did it, and try to make it look like the Iranians did it in order to drive a wedge between their two worst enemies. And after all, it wasn't Hezbollah, regular Hezbollah in Lebanon, and it wasn't Khatib al-Hezbollah in Iraq that knocked our towers down, that killed 3,000 Americans here, that killed that were the, the worst part of the Sunni insurgency that killed 4,000 out of the 4,500 Americans that died in Iraq War II. That was the bin Ladenites that did that. But the American government 
whether it's Bush, because remember this didn't start with bin Laden, the redirection was under Bush in 07, in 06, reported in 07. Under Bush, under Obama, under Trump, and continuing under Biden, our government prefers our enemies, Al-Qaeda, enemies they created for us in the first place and provoked against us in the first place, but they still prefer our enemies to their regional adversaries, Iran and their Shiite allies. And that's why this frankly treasonous policy on the side of these bin Ladenites. Obama wasn't a secret Muslim from Kenya. He's just George W. Bush. He's just, <laughs> he's just Hillary Clinton standing in and, and to pass the baton through in a single consistent policy through. And this is also, and I won't belabor this, I swear, but I'm telling you now, this is the same policy that has America not just committing an outright medieval siege campaign of genocide, uh, and that word's overused. I'm not overusing it. It is a deliberate campaign of genocide against the civilian population of Yemen. And why? In the name of the fact that the now ruling regime there, the Houthis, are Shiites. And therefore, we just must believe are cat's paws and agents of Iran. And that's the excuse for America to wage a genocidal war, but not just that, but a treasonous one too. Again, on the side of Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, the same guys that bombed the USS Cole, the same guys that helped coordinate the September 11th attack, that did the Charlie Hebdo attack and a couple of the other attacks in, um, in uh, France in 2015. And, and in fact, I skipped one 2009. They did the underpants bombing where they tried to blow up the plane over Detroit on Christmas Day. These are real Al-Qaeda terrorists. And ever since, for, for now six years, since 2015, Obama stopped bombing Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and took their side against their enemies, the Houthis. All of this, again, in the name of this doctrine, as Jeff explained in his introduction here, all to somehow try to spite the Iranians for daring to declare independence from us. And again, in a revolution that Jimmy Carter's government nominally supported, they couldn't do anything about it, the Shah was dying anyway. The Americans let the Ayatollah go home, and by the way, that mean, scary old Ayatollah with the big black eye rings, he died in 89. That uh, the costs for the American people uh, have been just, you know, uh, obviously in the wars has been, uh, you know, approximately uh, 7,000 killed and tens of thousands wounded, uh, somewhere around uh, $7 trillion absolutely blasted into oblivion with nothing to show for it whatsoever. And the opportunity costs of all of this brain power and all this economic power and all this manpower being wasted on this ridiculous war are essentially incalculable in the tens of trillions probably of wealth that never was that could have been. And of course, it's done so much to destabilize politics in America. So much of this is left over. The, the partisanship now is left over from the fights over whether you support torture or not. And George Bush insisted all good, patriotic, conservative, Republican Americans support torture because he got caught torturing people. And then, you know, there are fathers and daughters who never made up after fighting about this. You know, there are divisions in our country that have not been healed since, fighting about these stupid wars and fighting about the economic consequences of them and the societal effects. And you guys leaning Austrian school know that it's the easy money that causes the boom and the bust cycle, not just price inflation, but the boom and then the very real bust. But that inflationary money is necessary so that we can have a world empire. You can read it in the National Review. They'll tell you, well, we have to have a central bank. What if there's a war? Yeah, exactly. That's why to take their central bank away. And, and, and it goes to show this is how they get away with not raising your taxes while they wage a world empire. They make it seem free. But then you don't realize that your time spent in the funeral of your next door neighbor after he blew his brains out, that time of yours is your cost of killing a million Iraqis. The oil didn't pay for it. It comes in the form of the mass destabilization of the boom and bust. And you can't overstate this. There are others much better on the statistics than me. But all of this is traceable right back to the war on terrorism. And you see the bankruptcies. You see the um, 
low, the, the um, uh, a lowering age of death of life expectancy. You see the lengthening of ages when millennials and Zoomers are able to get married and buy houses and have families. Uh, you see um, you know, a, a major millstone around the neck of American society. And they say always, no, but the, we all know they gotta have war because war is so good for the economy. But you know what, we've been at war for, well, a lot more than 20 years straight, but take the last 20. And we don't seem so prosperous to me. Everybody knows the, the boom we're experiencing now is a fake economic bubble driven by monetary expansion and is only going to lead to the next major crash and all the suicides and all the bankruptcies and all the foster care and all the destruction to our society. And then you wonder why people hate the center, why liberalism has failed. It's because liberalism was being run by the Clintons and the Bushes, and this is what they did with it. They ruined it. So now liberalism is dead, conservatism is dead, and the American people are moving further to the socialist left and the populist nationalist right in their rejection of the country club conservatism that got us into this mess. What they call moderation, which is in fact the extremism that's caused all our problems. And so it's a good place to wrap it up because this is where it falls on our responsibility as libertarians to show people we do not have to move further left and further right. And we sure don't need to be rhino liberal Republicans in the center which there's a faction of them threatening to break off from the Republican Party now. We're not that. We have the real answer, and the real answer is in the Declaration of Independence. And in our conception of libertarianism and Americanism, all of conservatism and liberalism and populism and socialism, all of this is a deviation away from the true plumb line, real Americanism. It's not Murray Rothbard, it's Thomas Jefferson. We don't have to prove it. We don't feel like proving it. It's self-evident to us that we're all born free. And from that, we, the libertarians, have deduced the rest of the program. Property rights, markets, limited government, if any, and peace. And so we have to be the voice so that the American people know they don't have to choose between you know, Mike Pompeo and AOC, that liberty is the real option. And it shouldn't be a coincidence, and I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about everybody else too. It's not a coincidence, and people should notice that the libertarians have to be, happen to be the best on foreign policy and anti-imperialism. When the liberals are in power, we stay good, and it matters. And and I know it is an important lesson to a lot of people. And I've had leftists tell me, well, I'm a libertarian now just because you guys stay good on the war. And if that's who's good on the war, then that's what I am. I guess I'm a libertarian with you. And so that's our role, to lead people to this understanding. that Forget your partisan identity. It doesn't matter. Ron Paul said, you like who you are? You can keep it. It's fine. I'm just asking you to be good on this. And, and that goes for the Republicans and Democrats of America. They don't have to stop being Republicans and Democrats. They just need to adopt our priorities because we've got the best ones. We've actually been thinking it through while they're slinging their mud and missing the point. And so that is our huge opportunity as libertarians. And thank you guys for this opportunity to talk to you today. Appreciate it.